0: This is a download from Newstalk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking books on News Talk 106
1: to 108.
2: asking the right questions, pushing the boundaries, and demanding enough from our political leaders.
1: We are outsiders, and we have to remain that way in order to be able to see into the world, around the world, under the world. Can't be inside the arena doing that. So outsiders to me has always been a pretty word, a beautiful word, something to aspire to, you know, in in my life. Not to, not to be not in the mix, not to not be in the arena, but the work that I do is outside, and then I walk in. I come in. If there's no place for me, I make a place for me. The word outsider has to do with perspective. I don't want to just see what's happening at that table where the people are making the decisions. I want to see in the audience. I want to see outside. I want to see who's sitting on the sidelines with me. Who's my community? Who's my tribe? Um, Who's agreeing with me and disagreeing with me? So it's kind of like we were walking up on stage today and I said, I love being backstage because I can see the audience. I can see who's down you know, center stage, who's stage right. Who staged left. So, my perspective as somebody, as an outsider, is greater than somebody who's front and centre all the time.
2: Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. How important is culture to the people and the government of Ireland? The publisher of the O'Brien Press, Michael O'Brien, takes a bite. Literary critic and author Paul Anthony Murray and Dr. Charlotte Killeen from Trinity College, Dublin, discuss the curious ambition of Bram Stoker and his journey into the literary avant-garde. And in keeping with the theme of books and politics, American activist poet Nikki Finney discusses the power of the outsider in a very monochrome world. This is a show about belief and vision, individualism and hope, voice and perception. But first, Bram Stoker, the facts and the fiction. I am all in a sea of wonders. I doubt, I fear, I think strange things, which I dare not confess to my own soul. God keep me, if only for the sake of those dear to me. Wonderful and thought-provoking lines from Bram Stoker in Dracula. Dracula. But half psychoanalytic and Irish readings of Bram Stoker misread his unique creative ability and built interpretation on a very questionable theory rather than the objective facts? Well, Bram Stoker's satinary essays has just been published by Four Courts Press and challenges some of the more traditional interpretations of Stoker's literary ambition. What we get in this book is the robust facts and the very juicy fiction. Now there are some superb essays in this compilation and ones that I found particularly interesting were Bram Stoker, The Child That Went With the Fairies, David Floyd's The Sport of Opposite Forces, Bram Stoker's Generational Anxiety and the incredibly hilarious The Lair of the White Worm or What Became of Bram Stoker by Trinity's Dr. Daryl Jones. So how should we interpret Bram Stoker? Well, Paul Murray, author of From the Shadow of Dracula, A Life of Bram Stoker, and Charlotte Killeen, editor of the Satinary Essays, popped into studio earlier in the week to discuss Ireland's best-loved Gothic writer. We had a great chat on how Bram Stoker fits into the Irish literary tradition.
0: Well, I'm Paul Murray. My biography, From the Shadow of Dracula, A Life of Bram Stoker, came out uh, 10 years ago, 2004. It was published by Jonathan Cape, which is part of Random House. It came out in Harback 2004, paperback 2005.
3: I'm Jared Killeen. I'm a lecturer in Victorian literature in Trinity College, Dublin. And I'm the editor of a new collection of essays on Bram Stoker to celebrate the centenary of his death. Stoker remains relevant today partly because vampires haven't gone away we're obsessed with vampires twilight true blood but also i think because he's a man who tells us a great deal about the anxieties of the Victorian era and if you look at the television now we're still obsessed with the Victorians where neo-Victorian literature is very popular so and stoker he's a kind of a nexus figure really for Victorian anxieties and interests
2: Paul I was very interested and amused to read your chapter in the centenary essays on Bram Stoker and you ended by saying that Bram Stoker is work in progress.
0: Well bear in mind that biography of Stoker is a fairly recent phenomenon particularly if you like attempts at scientific biography like mine but with any biography uh, you know someone like myself writes a book but new material comes along new perspectives come along the anxieties and preoccupations of an age change so I, I think everybody it's like building a wall and each biographer Brings their own brick to the wall, but the wall continues being built. And so, once someone like Stoker becomes kind of part of the literary industry, for want of a better word, then I think it's inevitable that people will continue working at Stoker biography, coming up with new facts, new angles, and so on.
2: And what's interesting is Stoker was actually quite a private man and he developed his sense of secrecy through working in Dublin Castle.
0: That's correct. And there's this extraordinary dichotomy about Stoker. On one hand, he's a big, larger-than-life, bluff, hearty man. He's very sociable, uh, he's much-loved. And at the same time, this is a very private man, a very secretive man, uh, a man who likes to be on his own, a man who's prone to moodiness and so on, and a man who took great care to keep his life secret and to make sure we didn't find out too much about him.
2: And was there reasons for that?
0: I think there's an ingrained habit of secrecy that might have come from the fact that not just he, but his father before him had worked for 50 years in Dublin Castle. His father is in the Chief Secretary's Office this is the absolute heart of the British administration including during the period of the famine for example. So his father would have had to have been a very discreet man because every secret that was there he knew it and so Bram would have grown up if you like in that secretive uh, world and then he, he in turn became a civil servant in Dublin Castle himself.
2: Now Charlotte one of the things I was surprised to read was that Bram produced 12 novels and most people only know one which is Dracula.
0: Yeah
3: and The Lair of the White Worm is probably the second most famous book in book it's always been in print in some version or, not or another, usually an abridged version, very badly edited. But he was relatively prolific after dracula once he became more or less unemployed certainly he was writing for money and he needed the money so he did produce quite quickly quite a number of novels the actual number is disputed because some of the the longer short stories or you might call them novellas could be counted as novels so the actual number is disputed and they're they're in all kinds of different genres he wrote children's lit he wrote romance he wrote historical fiction uh, and he wrote gothic literature obviously
2: and what's interesting is the standard of writing and also the style of writing is quite variable throughout these novels.
3: Yeah, he he tried to match the style to the genre and depending on your perspective, he's either more or less successful. He has certain weaknesses that keep reappearing uh, over and over again in his fiction. From my perspective, his main problem is that for some reason he wants to capture dialect and he's completely incapable of doing it. And that can be an irritant. And you can get extraordinary short stories marred by his insistence on trying to match the dialect. Um, There's a great short story called The Squaw, which is completely marred by his attempt to sort of capture the accent of the American South.
2: So, Jared, was it his academic abilities kind of overstepped his creative capabilities in some way that he stifled himself by just putting his brain before the creative process?
3: I think he's an, he was ambitious. He wanted to be a successful writer. He did send his uh, works to quite well-known people and asked, them their, asked their opinions. He was in touch with a, a network of writers, so he was quite interested in the writing scene and in being a literary figure. I mean, he's a very competent writer, I would say. He's a very good, popular writer. He's not a, a literary genius, but he's a good, competent, workman-like writer.
2: And Paul Stoker actually had access to a lot of very powerful people in both Irish and English society. He met Gladstone, he met Walt Whitman, and he was very connected to the upper classes.
0: Yes he was and that began in Dublin when he frequented the household of Oscar Wilde's family who were very upper middle class and and they in turn connected to the whole intelligentsia of Ireland at the time so when he goes to London and he's the acting manager or the business manager of the Lyceum Theatre where he functions as a kind of chief of protocol as well as everything else he meets all the the rich and powerful of England at that time from the Prime Minister Gladstone through people like the Royal Family the Prince of Wales uh, Irving performance especially in front of Queen Victoria, for example, and right down through the the Lyceum was was a meeting place for the elite of late Victorian London and Stoker's at the apex of it because Irving himself, while he's a great actor, is not very well educated and he's not very articulate or sociable off the stage. And so, if you like, uh, Stoker carries the Lyceum from a sort of protocol PR point of view.
2: And what about his politics as an Irishman Hmm. working in England?
0: Well, they're fascinating because he's a lifelong home ruler and his home rule sentiments are much more deeply entrenched than some critics would allow. He becomes a home ruler as a young man frequenting the Wild household where people like Isaac Bott were also part of that milieu and then uh, in England throughout his time there he remains committed to home rule but not just that, he has very clear ideas about the social and economic development of Ireland and these are coherent and consistent from the time he's at Trinity in his twenties to uh, just a few years before his death when he writes an article on the, the World's Fair in Dublin 1907 in which he again sets out a very modern view of Ireland and for example in terms of his economic thinking it's only in the 1960s that the kind of economically led thinking that he espoused comes back into Irish politics.
2: And did his politics in any way affect his book sales?
0: I shouldn't think so. I mean he was he was popular and well known to the home rule leaders uh, you know people like John Dillon for example and, and he socialised with them and he got got some good reviews in, in nationalist journals from people like Michael Tavage, for example. But I doubt that those relationships would have had much of an impact on book sales.
2: Charlotte, can you talk me through the centenary essays? It's quite an eclectic mix. I'm just looking at the, the contents here. And while you've got very high profile and well-known um, literary experts, the range of topics is quite extraordinary.
3: My idea was that everyone knows Dracula. Dracula has been written about. There's practically a library of criticism now on Dracula. If you were to send someone to write about Dracula, they're bewildered by the sheer amount of material that's there. And the 11 or 12 other novels are almost completely forgotten. So my idea here was, let's look at Stoker in the round, look at at the life, the man, and look at all the other texts, as many as we can get in. And also look at him as a diary writer or as a a note taker. And there is an an essay on Stoker as someone who took notes quite a lot. So that was the idea of the book. It's not that Dracula is ignored. There's still plenty of material on Dracula there and some new, very interesting material there. But we wanted to get a view of Stoker as a more varied writer than just somebody who wrote Dracula.
2: And one of the very intriguing essays is Mr. Stoker's Holiday by Christopher Frayling.
3: Yeah, so he takes what he calls a radically empirical view of Stoker. He says, you know, let's get beyond the theorising about Stoker. There's been an awful lot of psychoanalytic speculation really about Stoker. And he wants to get back, let's look, what do we actually know about a very small episode in Stoker's life, this holiday in Whitby, and how this influenced the writing of Dracula. And he goes minutely through every single day that Stoker spent in Whitby. And he unearths new materials, and he, he tries to tell us what that might explain about Stoker himself, what kind of a man he was, what kind of a writer he was. And he lists at the end of that article something like 10 to 12 facts we can now pin on Stoker and say, well, because of this holiday and what we know about this holiday and sifting through the actual empirical evidence, this is what we can now say about Stoker. And that's, that's quite interesting. It's quite a provocative essay because he starts off by saying basically why psychoanalytic and Irish readings of, of uh, Stoker have more or less built their entire readings on a theory rather than on the facts and so it's quite provocative. I don't agree with everything that he says but it's certainly one to make you think.
2: Now one of the essays I laughed my head off and got a great kick out of was The Lair of the White Worm or What Became of Bram Stoker by Daryl Jones. Now it's a very entertaining essay and he has very curious information but it all hinges on the fact that maybe Readers have misread Bram Stoker's last novel. As I
3: said before, it's the only novel, except for Dracula, that has always been in print. Although it's been in versions, it hasn't been the actual novel that Stoker wrote. It's always been an edited version. And it's always been a very curious piece of work. Bonkers, possibly. Certainly one of the weirdest books I've ever read. And the explanations for its weirdness have been quite varied. But one of the the dominant ones has been that Stoker was very ill while he was writing it, uh, he was very close to death, uh, he was in constant pain, so that this may have produced a very dishevelled, very odd piece of work. Now what Darrell argues is that this is underestimating Stoker's ambition and that Stoker's connections to the artistic avant-garde may have had much more of an influence on something like The Lair of the White Worm than we expect. So this kind of uh, symbolist sort of mismatching of scenes and and odd plot developments may be his attempt to write a simplest text, an avant-garde work of art. If it is, and it's an intriguing idea, it still doesn't account for the fact that the novel doesn't work, but it may account for why it's remained in the consciousness of people. It's very hard to forget the images that Stoker evokes in it. And certainly the illustrator that he asked to illustrate, she had very close connections to the literary avant-garde.
2: And Charlotte, I think one of the challenging aspects of this novel is the fact that in terms of the narrative, we have characters who die and then are brought back to life and are in three different locations at the one time. Yeah, it doesn't
3: make sense. I mean, certainly the plot does not make sense. Reading it again recently, I think one of the things I was forgotten is that Stoker is actually quite funny. There's a very funny scene in the novel where one of the characters who's been having tea with a woman who transforms into a worm says, this is very, very strange that we could sit down and have tea in a room very calmly and speak politely to someone we think transforms into a gigantic serpent every single night and she says something like do serpents use starch in their clothes and things like this he knows that it's an absurd plot and he's having fun with, with the characters and I think that far too often Stoker is taken as a very very serious very repressed very uh, hypocritical man in in his own mind because of his dealings, particularly with sexuality. But Stoker was known to be a funny man. He was a joker, as well as being ambitious and, and, and a very good bureaucracy. So I think that a lot of his work may be intended to be funny, and it is funny if we look at it in that way. And that we're meant to see these jokes...
2: And Paul there's a lot of differing views on Bram Stoker's sexuality his relationship with his wife whether he frequented brothels or not and whether he died of syphilis Well
0: I think it's very difficult to get around the syphilis issue first of all because his GP who was a personal friend of his wrote locomotor ataxia on his death certificate and that could only mean one thing which was syphilis and he had six months which by which we assume he meant that the final tertiary stage lasted six months Uh, I've as you know looked to this issue afresh in the book and I've tried to look at the contemporary medical textbooks and see what did the doctors think themselves in that era and the conclusion I've come to is that if indeed he did have syphilis that he might have contracted as a young man in Dublin that this might have come to light after the birth of his first child uh, just after a year of marriage and that after that he and Florence's wife may have had to have a non-sexual marriage. At the same time such little evidence as we have about the marriage indicates that it was a successful marriage perhaps they weren't very close but they did seem to have a marriage that worked in their terms for each other so a lot of the wild speculation about bram frequenting brothels late in life and perhaps you know having a secret life as a gay and so on hanging around the prostitutes on the strand i mean that is just wild there is no support for that whatsoever but it is i think quite possible he was a very popular young man around town in dublin his 20s he was one of the outstanding people in dublin at that time we know he was very popular with the young ladies. He was also very involved with the acting fraternity and so uh, I don't think it takes too much imagination to see that he might have contracted syphilis at that time and what we know about the time frame of syphilis would indicate that had he become infected as a young man that would fit the chronology of his life and his, his illnesses and finally his death.
2: And Paul, one of the interesting things is that Bram Stoker had quite extensive correspondence with a range of literary figures around the world, one of them being the American poet Walt Whitman
0: that's right he fell in love with Whitman's uh, poetry as a young man in Dublin and he was part of an advanced if you like academic uh, intellectual group uh, which was headed by his great friend uh, Professor Dowden first professor of English at Trinity now you've got to bear in mind at that time uh, Whitman is a very controversial character he's he's the new avant-garde poet he outrages conservatives both by his style and his subject matter but Stoker is immediately captivated by him and actually writes a letter to Whitman as a young man here in Dublin to explain his adoration of Whitman. And then later on in the 1880s, when he's working uh, for Henry Irving, the Lyceum Theatre tours in North America, 1883-84, and he brings Irving along to meet Whitman. And Whitman, incidentally, is hugely impressed by Stoker and says afterwards, you know, it's clear that a lot of Henry Irving's success can be put down to that man, Stoker.
2: So, Charlotte, why is Bram Stoker consistently relevant
3: well, if we, even if we just took Dracula, Dracula is the most filmed character in uh, world literature he's had an enormous impact on the horror genre which is simply a genre of global significance all the great horror writers of the 20th century and the 21st century draw on dracula they can't escape from dracula so that if we were to to talk about who was the most influential writer from ireland in this period it's not joyce uh, it's not yeats it's not Wilde; it's probably stoker just on the point of his cultural impact in the creation of this one character that's really, his literary legacy is with Dracula, and it's an enormous, it's an absolutely staggering impact on our culture. Everyone knows who Dracula is, even if they haven't read the book.
2: And to have your career hinge on just one book, is that not a bit troubling?
3: In one sense, it's, an, it's a huge achievement. I mean, most writers are forgotten. What books are we going to remember from this period in 20, 30 years? So if you write one great novel that has had a huge, enormous impact, I think that's, there's no main feat, and I mean, I think that we certainly shouldn't play it down.
0: Yeah I mean picking up on Charlotte's point I think by virtue of, of Dracula Stoker is increasingly a global figure and I, th- I think it's destined to grow because only in the last 20 years that people have associated Bram Stoker with Dracula but I think there's a lot more to Stoker than that and I think from a purely Irish point of view he's a very important figure he spent just under half his life in Ireland he didn't leave until he was 31 so he's he remained much more connected with Ireland and for example Wilde, Shaw many of his contemporaries who uh, ended up in, in London and uh, particularly as we now approach uh, the centenary of 1916, we need to look back I think at the major figures who preceded 1916 and Stoker is of prime importance there in terms of his economic, social, political ideas uh, which were extremely modern extremely progressive uh, and remind us that you know a hundred years ago there were people with with very different ideas about the future of Ireland that, that are worth exploring. I think Dracula is relevant first of all as Stoker is an Irish writer but more particularly because Dracula is part of the global consciousness and he communicates not just with people in ireland or britain or europe but he communicates with people all over the world and he communicates with every demographic which is very important Uh, very often if you go to cultural events most people are older people there where dracula is a literary figure who communicates with people of every age and is probably most popular with younger people
2: And that was Paul Murray and Charlotte Colleen of Trinity College Dublin discussing reality and fiction in the life and works of Bram Stoker. Coming up next, Michael O'Brien, the publisher of one of Ireland's most revered publishing houses, the O'Brien Press, on literary innovation and government cultural policy in Ireland.
0: Talking books on News Talk one hundred six to one hundred eight,
2: and you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk one hundred six to one hundred eight. I'm Susan Cal, and of course, if you'd like to get in contact with the show, well, it's always lovely hearing from you—really lovely. All you need to do is drop me a line at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. Now, let's move into an entirely different space, into the world of politics and books. Well, in this month's Books Ireland, the esteemed publisher of the O'Brien Press, Michael O'Brien, has written an extraordinary article on the challenges facing Irish publishers. Michael's opinion piece is entitled A Nasty Twist in the Tale for Irish Books, and it makes for very interesting reading. Well, I took a bit of a nature walk over to the O'Brien Press and met with Michael O'Brien and asked him about the challenges facing Irish publishers today. Let's have a listen.
4: I'm Michael O'Brien. I founded with my father O'Brien Press in 1974. It's 40 years ago. We've published thousands of books since then, too many to count. We're still doing about 40 new books a year, despite the recession. Very proud of that. My son Ivan is our managing director, and we have about 700 on e book and in print.
2: Now, Michael, how under attack? are Irish publishers.
4: Irish publishers are, are definitely under attack and what's ironic about it is this time by our own government that's supposed to be defending us and creating jobs. The reason we're under the attack is that the government almost like a sneak attack decided to create a massive tender for every single public library in Ireland that can only go to a British library suppliers and this will close down businesses from booksellers and library suppliers and will damage publishers and writers.
2: And Michael it's quite ironic really when you consider that the government is talking talking about creating jobs every day of the week and that's the big PR spin when in reality we're shooting ourselves in the foot
4: it's i think an obsession with bureaucracy and obviously taking our eye off the ball really because I think what we lack in this country is strategy, long-term strategy. I and mean, when I was writing in Books Ireland, and it was a piece about cultural policy, in Ireland people think that cultural policy is just about putting on plays, but it's about our economy, it's about tourism, it's about enriching the country culturally and actually bread on the table. The French are the world champions at this. They are marvellous. They now are developing policies 20 years in advance, and serious policies. An interesting thing is our Department of Arts, I checked this out, the budget is so small that the Department of Education spends the whole budget in one day
2: That's a frightening consideration because when you think about it, a lot of tourists come to Ireland because of our unique literary heritage and they're attracted to our writers and our poets and we have this wealth at our doorsteps, yet we're not really doing anything about it.
4: Well, there is a proposal, and it's a great proposal, by an amalgam put together, the Literary Trust, to start a major thing in Dublin, a visitor centre called Alive, a literary visitor experience. All it needs is four million. The HSE waste more than 4 million in 10 minutes. I mean, I was reading about wastes of 20 million, and I can't believe that this isn't grasped, especially as Dublin is the UNESCO city of literature. And in fact, our government ministers regularly, when they go abroad, what do they boast about? We have four Nobel Prize winners and all this blah, 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 which we have. We're very proud. It's our primary artistic endeavour. Yet when it comes to actually taking financial advantage of that for the general people, nothing.
2: And it's a huge oversight and it really makes you think, what are we as a nation? We are our moral capital, but we're just as much our cultural capital.
4: Well, I think that's recognised by visitors. Unfortunately, we're also a very rainy capital. And so when we have major tourists, which we have from time to time, actually we need a a number of, of serious indoor activities. I believe myself that cultural tourism and the arts could save the economy. I'll give you an example. You get fifty million tourists to Paris every year. That's an entire country is seventy million. And they have spent and invested to make that possible. And therefore I think what I would like to see is a really powerful culture department, that tourism should be part of it. There should be a very senior minister there. It should work with the economic forces for jobs and we need to have a change of heart, a change of mind. Ordinary people too. We have to look on economic benefits of the arts and work to our strengths, which are many.
2: Now, Michael, the O'Brien Press has been publishing books related to Irish themes for over 40 years. I know your father set up the business. Mm. Now, you do everything from graphic novel to history to memoir. You do superb books. What is the future and what are we looking at down the line for publishers like yourselves?
4: There's a great future for books. I'm an elder lemon. We have a a little association of elder lemons in publishing. I'm one of them. During my entire 40-year career, there were projections about the collapse of of publishing television was supposed to destroy publishing the internet was supposed to destroy publishing and so on and so on and so on and the book as an item well let's face it it's been there for hundreds of years almost a thousand years you know we must regard e-books as books and we must regard printed books as books but the number of people writing Sue is uh, staggering the level and intensity of the creative will to be published is overwhelming
2: what has been your proudest moment because if I go through the list of books that have been published through the years to some of the treasures of Irish publishing or O'Brien Press?
4: I think really, I suppose, all the things we innovated, all the times we've been first to do things. So it's a bigger picture than one one, one book. We actually set out many years ago to create a new literature for Irish children when it didn't exist, which is incredibly ambitious. We didn't even have the writers. We published about a thousand novels for children, but 400 of them are still in print at all ages. I'm pretty proud of that. Very early on, we discovered that it was possible to sell international rights. A lot of things happened by accident. But one of our books written, a novel by Padre O'Donnell was published in Russia, in Russian. And we weren't even instrumental in it. And we got a cheque, a bank of iron cheque and a letter from Moscow at closing this book. And I realised, my God, we're publishing mainly in the English language. It's the premier language. So we started attending all the major book fairs. And now we would have books in about 45 languages translated and about 500 titles, and we're continuing. Like, we just sold a series of books to a Korean publisher, nine books for children, Joe O'Brien's Alfie Green You know, can you imagine in Korean?
2: This is a dirty, tricky question, but I have Mm. to ask it. You've gone through so many books in your lifetime. If you were to bring just three books with you, what would they be?
4: Oh, God, that is unfair. One of them would probably be an unfinished novel by my father. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I think Under the Hawthorne Tree was a very important book to have published. And in modern times, the book I'm really proud of is Frank McGuinness's Armathea because Frank took a leap of faith, famous novelist, you know, all he could do was go down. In terms of publishing a quite risky, and it was hugely acclaimed. And it was marvellously innovative. I think it's great to be proud of things you did years ago, but it's also great for me to be proud of things I did last week.
2: And that was Michael O'Brien, the publisher of the O'Brien Press, talking to me about the interplay between politics and books. OK, let's soften things up a bit with a bit of poetry and inspiration from American activist poet Nikki Finney. Nikki Finney was born in 1957 in South Carolina. The daughter of a lawyer and a teacher... Finney's parents were both active in the civil rights movement. Nikki has written four books of poetry: "Head Off and Split," "The World Is Around," "Rice," and "On Wings Made of Gauze." "Head Off and Split" was awarded the 2011 National Book Award for Poetry. In addition to the National Book Award, Finley has received a PEN American Open Book Award and the Benjamin Franklin Award for Poetry. Finlay's engagement with political activism has also influenced her trajectory as a poet, where she carefully weaves the personal and the political. Well, in April, I had the pleasure of meeting Nikki Finney and taking part in her unbelievable workshop at the Kurt International Festival of Literature in Galway. After the workshop, I got a chance to spend some time with Nikki and I asked her can poetry be? Political.
1: Poetry can and should be, and it can be political and other things as well. But here's the thing. What isn't political? Everything is political. Clean water, clean air, where you go to school, what kid gets a book, a new book, and what kid gets a a, a hand-me-down book, who gets to have organic food and who doesn't. All that is political. People make decisions about our lives every single day. So suddenly, you know, people come up and say, oh your your work, you know, is a little too political for me I'm like no you see it as political because I take on subjects that I'm not afraid to take on and I you know treat them like art and that's what I feel like I do in the arena of the arts. And do you think that
2: in some communities or in society at some stages that people have expectations of female poet and they want the frills the daffodils and they want the leafy loft the romance of poetry and that actually they're missing the fact that poetry is a communication and it's about spaces of engagement.
1: Yes, they are missing that. And they are also trying to dim the voices of human beings who have something brilliant to say in their own way of saying it. You know, there's a woman that graduated from Smith College in in the States who said a genius does not write to please. I had to say that quote because I believe it. I I live that every day. What I have to say, I feel like we need to hear as a human race, you know, the people trying to figure out how to do something better, give something to our children that we didn't have. That requires courage. Can we talk a little bit about your grandmother? You lived with her. She
2: taught you a lot about language, a lot about folklore, about tradition and storytelling.
1: My grandmother didn't graduate from high school, but... To me, she was the most brilliant woman I ever met because she saw the whole world. She saw... The world of geography. She knew what grew on the land, what to do with it. She saw the world of people. She could read somebody's ridiculousness in one fell swoop. And she read the paper like it was, you know, the the last thing that was ever going to be published in the world. She was very specific about details in life and paying attention to the details in life. She knew what to eat to keep herself healthy without going to the doctor every two weeks. So she was like, present in the world. She was four foot ten and she was a giant to me. When I was growing up and I was a little, you know, I was like eccentric and and on the outside of the margins, she would come in the room and she would say one thing. She would say, leave her alone. And everybody would just kind of leave me alone. She was so protective of who I was and my spirit. And she saw who I was. She saw that I was an artist, though she didn't call me that. And she knew that I was trying to do something with my life that other people weren't doing around me. And so she gave me courage and she gave me resilience. She showed me how to be independent. She showed me how to grow my own food. The most important thing she ever showed me was when she would say to me, a lie is akin to murder, so tell the truth. And I would just say, okay. So I, as a kid, understood from her that telling the truth was the most important thing I could do with my life. Not make a million dollars, not, you know, receive 20 degrees, but tell the truth every day I was alive. And that's really what I'm trying to do with my work. Isn't that an extraordinary privilege? Do you think that poets are outsiders? I do. I think that, you know... We are outsiders, and we have to remain that way in order to be able to see into the world, around the world, under the world. You can't be inside the arena doing that. So outsiders to me has always been a pretty word, a beautiful word, something to aspire to You know, in, in my life. Not to, not to be not in the mix, not to not be in the arena, but the work that I do is outside and then I walk in. I come in. If there's no place for me, I make a place for me. The word outsider has to do with perspective. I don't want to just see what's happening at that table where the people are making the decisions. I want to see in the audience. I want to see outside. I want to see who's sitting on the sidelines with me. Who's my community? Who's my tribe? Um, Who's agreeing with me and disagreeing with me? So it's kind of like we were walking up on stage today and I said, I love being backstage because I can see the audience. I can see who's down, you know, center stage, who's stage right, who's stage left. So my perspective as somebody, as an outsider, is greater than somebody who's front and center all the time. And while there's tremendous grace in that, there's a huge responsibility, Nikki. There is a huge responsibility. And if you take that role, if you know, okay, I'm in the background, I'm backstage looking around, then you are responsible for letting people know what's happening from where you sit. You can't just take all that in and get quiet. So I have to write from there and I have to speak from there and I have to remind people, come back here with me. Look at what I'm looking at. Don't just think that you want to be on row A or row one because there's a lot more going on around us if we would just take the time to sort of take the ego out of it and realize that you're going to take more in from different positions in life.
2: Now, you describe yourself as an activist poet. Do you think we're asking enough questions in society? Do you think we're challenging states of understanding and institutions? And do you think that we're asking the right questions?
1: I don't think we're asking the right questions. I don't think we're asking enough questions. And I think we can't leave it to one or two or five people to say the hard things. If you come to a reading and you hear something that moves you, or if you go to a a community meeting and you hear somebody out front... We as a world have to figure out how to join in. We don't have to all write poems. We don't have to all, you know, line up in front of the police station and say we're not going anywhere. There are many of us in many different positions where we could be doing something to help change the world, and we feel like we can't. We don't feel like we have the power, but everybody nurses, lawyers, development people, people who give conferences. Think outside the box. Don't just think we're going to invite the same people that we invited last year. You know, back to my grandmother. She would say, if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always gotten. Do something different include somebody in your planning that you've never included before. Open up the doors a little bit. Let some new ideas. Don't let your ego say you're the only one who can lead this charge. You know, that's, the, that's one of the problems. So I think, I think that, yes, we are not asking enough questions and we are not being empowered enough. And we have to because the world is screaming for our help.
2: And do you think women are making life more difficult on themselves than they need to?
1: I don't think women are making it more difficult. I think that many times perhaps women don't speak up enough. There are plenty of women who do speak up and there are plenty who don't. But I don't think they're making it more difficult for themselves. I think the world makes it pretty difficult for women sometimes to get ahead. And I think that we just have to keep knocking on that door, keep insisting on you know, equality and and things that we want for ourselves and for our daughters and for our sons. It's not just women who should be doing this. Sons should be doing it. Brothers should be doing it. Partners should be doing it because we want the world to be better all around. It's like when we're fighting for something for one group of people, it's for humanity that we're really asking these things for, not just for that one group. People like to say, well, that's just for that group or that's just for women or that's just for men. No, what helps one group helps all of us.
2: But some people would say that there's a greater divide, we're driving inequalities, and the society is becoming less fair.
1: On some level, it is. I think that if we're going to be quiet, if we're going to, you know... I, what I would love to see is the things that I saw as a child growing up in the 60s, which people would, like, take to the streets and make homemade signs and stand and say, no, I'm not doing this, together. Because it, ha- it can't be one person, it can't be 10 people, it really has to be the entire community saying you know, taxes are crazy, or this person is, you know, lying to us and has been lying to us for years, and we just allow him to stay there and and we put him in office again. Or she. It's not just men that do that. So I think that we just have to draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, I don't want this world to be taken for granted. I don't want the things in it that we've worked so hard for, that we struggle for. We've got these laws on the books that people are trying to dismantle. I want those to stay in place, and I want even more.
2: And Barack Obama has empowered Americans to think differently and to look inward. Do you think he's done enough, though?
1: I think he's done some things, and I think his hands have been tied. I think that the system that he is working in, there is a push and a a mountain of people who really disagree with him and really don't want him to win one thing and will do whatever they can do so that he never wins anything that he pushes for. And I think because of the kind of system we have, he has not been able to do many of the things that he wishes he could and that many people in the electorate wish he could do. And so I it's been really sad because now I think he's a good man with some really great ideas and I think his hands have been tied and I think that was the plan all along. And where do you see American politics
2: shaping up in the next 10 years and the enormous challenges the country faces in terms of social poverty, in terms of greater divides, and in terms of whether it's health or education, the massive disparities between rich and poor. Because in America, the divides are the greatest. Mm
1: -hmm. I think that those now, you know, I'm a poet, I'm not a politician, Mm. but I'm, I am a community person. Mm. So I answer this as one of millions of other voices. Mm. But From what my perch, from where I sit right now, people are trying to make it even more than just one percent. You know, people are trying to take the one percenters and allow them to control politics, control what happens in our country. And everything that I'm talking about now, that people have got to get involved from every corner of America and say, we're not going to do this. We're not going to allow A handful of people who have billions and billions of dollars to control our destiny, control who we are as a country, control what happens to our children, how they go to school, if they go to jail, if they have money, if they have ways to take care of themselves. But this can't come from one poet. It can't come from 10 artists. It has to come from every community possible that has to stand up and say to the elected officials, your lie that you've told us for many, many years is not gonna stand the test of time. And we're gonna work against you and we're gonna put somebody in office who cares about us and cares about humanity and cares about people who don't have a lot of things. And we're gonna work to get the world, our world, whatever that world is, better. So I think we're headed for some real trouble if we don't understand what's coming down the pipe. Because I think it's only gonna get worse, financially, if we don't.
2: American activist poet Nikki Finney talking to me about the relationship between politics and poetry. The music was Goldman, Aka Kikaniff, from The Malady of elegance. Well that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Now I'm just back from Senegal and West Africa and last week I met with quite an interesting range of writers and artists and I'm going to be bringing you some of those interviews over the next couple of weeks. Now just to let you know from next week Talking Books will be repeated at 7pm every Sunday night and next week I have a very interesting interview with you. It's with this year's Booker Award winner Eleanor Catton. I met her up at the Kurt International Festival of Literature and she was very generous with her time and we had one lovely conversation. So, some thoughtful conversation to look forward to next week. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan who helped out on research and the lovely Alan Regan on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end this morning's show with a quote from Walt Whitman who incidentally, had a close correspondence with Bram Stoker in the 1870s. He once advised, Happiness, not in another place, but this place. Not for another hour, but this hour.
0: Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108.